Hi there, thanks for joining us. My name is Andrew Dunkley and this is Space Nuts, where we talk astronomy and space science. Coming up today, we're going to look at a fascinating story about an ancient arrowhead that was uh, created by uh, an ancient person. And what's interesting is the material or she. Uh, we'll also be uh, looking uh, back at a story we did last week about that African meteorite that was found in the desert. Well, uh, now a question's been asked as to whether or not there's another piece of uh, iron floating around in space that was put there by an impact or an explosion of some kind. Uh, there's also uh, news about how Mars is spinning and there's been uh, a bit of um, a discovery by the InSight rover or the InSight um, mission. And we'll do a whole bunch of other stuff as well, including audience questions coming up on this episode of Space Nuts. 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining us, as always, is his good self, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hi, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing today? I am well, sir. How are you? Yeah, all right, thanks. Um, as you can see, the cupboards are bare at my place. Yes, it's uh, looking very, very bleak at your yes. place. Yes, we're, uh, we're packing. We're getting ready for the big move. I mean, we don't have to move for another few weeks, but uh, my lovely wife, Judy, loves to be organised. Well, look, when it comes to a house move, it's the only way. <laughs> because uh, if you leave everything to the last minute, it's total chaos and you don't know what you're doing. You end it always is. And you end up very grumpy. <laughs> uh, well, we've already done that bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you started grumpy. You might not you know, might not be grumpy by the end of it. That's a good sign. I just think I think it'll just be you know a standard level of grumpiness until it's all over. Yeah, well, maybe that's right. <laughs> I think that'll be the way to go. Uh, now um, we we've got a fair bit to talk about today. I love this story about the Bronze Age arrowhead, which was not made of bronze, by the way. Um, but um, it, it, it's what they've discovered about it that uh, I find fascinating. Now, w do we know when this arrowhead was found originally? Uh, I, we'll say a while ago. It was yes, <laughs> um, I, yes. No, I, we we probably do know, but I don't. <laughs> so that wasn't that wasn't the question that I was expecting to you to ask me. Um, the <laughs> the, um, the question uh, that I thought you were going to ask me was uh, when was it made? And the answer is probably about three thousand years ago. Uh, but three thousand years ago is not when it was found, so that's the wrong answer. <laughs> Right. Okay. But 3,000 years ago, somebody found a rock and went, oh, this looks good for making arrowheads. Yeah. That's and they right. said it with that accent too. And then um, they did make one and who knows where it ended up, but they've found it and analyzed it and gone, hang on a minute, something's different here. So what's the story? Uh, it's a really interesting one that kind of casts light on the way metals were used back in those early times. <clears throat> and we know, um, for example, we know that uh, in Egyptian times, uh, when, you know, we're talking now 4,000 years ago when the pyramids were being built and things of that yeah. sort, uh, 
uh, iron was actually more precious than gold. Um, and the reason was that nobody had worked out how to turn iron ore into iron at that time. Mm. Um, but gold was could be dug out as lumps of gold. Uh, as we know, gold nuggets are still occasionally found. Yes. Uh, they are metallic gold. So um, to find uh, a lump of iron on the surface of the earth was a huge you know, a huge thing in ancient times because here was a metal uh, that nobody knew how to make, uh, but you could find lumps of it uh, and you could kind of, by hacking away at it, uh, cut it up and fabricate it into useful things. And uh, one of the, the reasons why I mentioned Egypt is that um, one of the very, very ornate daggers that was buried with Tutankhamun has a blade made of meteoritic iron. So That's this is right. iron that has fallen from the sky. And I think, um, you know, in some ways to give, to, to, to make something like that for a king out of a lump of iron that you think has fallen from the sky, uh, that, that makes perfect sense because it's blessed by the gods and all the rest of it. So, um, so a meteoritic iron was extremely precious and uh, was used um, quite widely in the Middle East uh, for things like tools, uh, for you know weapons, things of that sort. Yeah. Uh, now, the reason why this bronze arrowhead is worthy of note is that most of those artifacts have been found principally in the Middle East um, and actually in Asia as well, uh, whereas this object was dug up in Switzerland. 19th 19th century it was found. Thank you. I should have read that because it was right in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear me. Um, how do we get away with this, Andrew? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> just blunder through, you know. Make, make it up as we go along. I think so, except I'm not. But, um, yeah, thank you very much. And the, so it's one that's been in a, you know, probably in a museum or something like that. Yeah. And, and but so, so this is has been analysed um, and it has been determined, because you can do this with isotope ratios, uh, that this is meteoritic iron. And uh, Switzerland is a place where uh, I, I don't think anything like this has ever been found before, a, 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 an arrowhead. Arrowheads and dwellings have been, have been found um, dating back. This is going back to somewhere between 900 and 800 before the common era, uh, so getting on for three thousand years ago, um, that the the these uh, artifacts that have been found don't normally include something that's got meteoritic origin. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, and uh, this one, so that's why it's a rarity. In fact, um, I've got a note here that says um, um, the, the sort of meteoritic uh, objects uh, in Europe have really only been uh, noted in Poland uh, that's there's been there's been um, uh, things found there in in mm. Poland so this is this is moving it slightly further to the west uh, and one in uh, in Switzerland now what gets interesting is when you look at the metal that this is made of because today people can actually associate metal objects. Uh, like this one, like this arrowhead, with meteorites, with uh, particular meteorites. You can, uh, if you've got samples of that particular meteorite, 
uh, you can actually link one with the other. And so there's basically lots of technology that's used to uh, to, to make these identifications. Um, they're using, um, I, I quite like this, um, NDT, which is something I hadn't come across before as an acronym or as a set of initials, non-destructive testing. Oh. I, I'm certainly familiar with the idea because that's what you want to do to a painting if you want to find out who made the paint, what it's made of. They do that with humans too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes they do, yeah. I seem to I seem to remember the, the tests, the mathematics tests that I had when I was at university were certainly not no. non-destructive. They no, no. Almost, almost ruined my life. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so non-destructive testing is being used, and it, it means things like, um, well, very clever stuff using muons, subatomic particles, to uh, to induce X-ray emission, um, and you know that kind of technology is something that would certainly not have been available to the 19th century uh, scientists and archaeologists who found this um, metal arrowhead. Mm. Uh, now, the interesting thing, though was um, that uh, the, the the one meteorite that seems to have the same metallic uh, metallic composition. composition thank you thank you I'm struggling this morning <laughs> uh, is known as the Twan, the Twanberg uh, iron meteorite uh, which has got lumps all over the place it obviously broke up uh, when it came through the atmosphere, uh, and so, uh, but that, but that's, the, the, you know, that that's the that's the nearest meteorite. Um, um, so they've found a couple of thousand pieces of that. They have, and the, the none of them match this arrowhead. That's oh, what I'm trying to I say. Know. I know. So <laughs> whoever yeah. made the arrowhead found a different rock. A different rock. Uh, and they can they've instead linked it with um, pieces from a meteorite that fell in Australia. Sorry, Estonia, not Australia. Estonia, oh, lovely, lovely close, country on the Baltic, uh, which is quite a long way from Switzerland. That's the bottom <laughs> line. Uh, and and that was probably about three and a half thousand years ago when that meteorite fell. Uh, that's the Korolev meteorite, uh, and it's got the same chemical signature as. Uh, and, and physical signature as this arrowhead. Uh, but, you know, you're talking about something that's a 1,000 miles away, 1,600 kilometres or thereabouts. So the question arises, how on earth did it end up in Switzerland? It was, yeah. uh, my guess is, one hell of a bow. Um, <laughs> probably not, but obviously somebody created this thing and it's it's found its way... A long way from where it originated. Yeah, um, it, I mean, you know, it may well have been traded. I think that was that's ah. the way these things worked. Um, certainly, uh, you know, from an area of expertise that I'm supposed to know something about, uh, things like telescopes were traded. Uh, yeah. That was, of course, that was much much later. That was in the um, in the 17th century. Uh, but uh, even so, they still had pretty rudimentary means of getting around, um, mostly walking or horseback. Uh, so I suspect that, um, yes, it was, it was probably trading that, that brought that arrowhead to where it was found in Switzerland. Or it was another similar rock. 
Yeah, that's another that, that's another uh, possible explanation. But that's a that's a boring answer. We don't we don't like that answer. Um, yeah, and it would be one that hasn't been found yet. Yeah, uh, you know that's um, and well, yeah, it m- m- might still remain to be found. There might be a meteor a meteorite remnant somewhere in Switzerland that matches the uh, the arrowhead. Uh, so either way, it's a great story, and I'm so sorry to have completely fumbled it while we just tell it's all good. Uh, so. I'm, I'm guessing it, it's a simple case of somebody uh, found this rock, saw its potential, and created the arrowhead, and, and probably created other things as well if there was enough material. Yes, that's right. So um, there's a good chance that you might find other stuff there, which, uh, uh, to the best of my knowledge, hasn't been found yet. Oh, oh um, uh, um, but yet, again, that sort of that tallies with the idea that this was traded from a long way away, you know, because all the other ones were probably in that region of Estonia where that meteorite landed. Or they were in something like a, an animal or, or another human. <laughs> that could have happened. Yeah, I mean, that's what our heads were for. Well, yes. Yes, that's right. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's a possibility as well. You knew I was you, going down that road. Yeah, yeah. So somewhere there might be bones that might be found with an arrowhead in the middle of them uh, that tells you that that was what it was used for. Well, wasn't there that famous case of the frozen man? I think his name was Otzi or something found yes. in the Alps. Right. Yeah, well done. Italian, Italian Alps. And, and yeah. they, they actually, he was so well preserved, they did a uh, post-mortem. And the first team of scientists couldn't figure out what killed him. A second team of scientists did an X-ray and went, oh, yeah, you got you, yeah, there's an arrow in him. <laughs> That's what killed him, <laughs> which was embarrassing for the first team. Well, it yeah, would be, yes, we didn't. Know, oh, we didn't notice that. Yeah, I didn't see that. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. Um, yeah. Universe is beige. No, um, it's it, it. It stands to reason that, 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 that there are probably several other arrowheads around somewhere that were made from whatever rock this person found. Yeah. Maybe, but not necessarily in Switzerland. Not necessarily. Yeah. It's a great story. Yeah, it is. And it, and it leaves so many, other, you know, so many unanswered questions. It's a really uh, lovely thing to uh, to conjecture on, but there's probably not that much more that we can do unless something turns up that matches this arrowhead uh, perfectly in terms of its uh, composition, its physical composition. Actually, hang on a sec, Fred. Got an idea. Be right back. <laughs> oh, for the benefit of those without uh, YouTube, yeah. he's got, he's got. I've got a uh, prop. Here he comes. Ah, it's a lump. I found uh, a rock. It's a lump of rock, uh, not shaped like an arrow. It's got uh, writing on it. And the writing says? Made in Mars. No, oh. it's, um, <laughs> it's, that's a rock from Cameron Corner, which is a particularly popular tourist destination in this part of the world where three states meet. Yes, uh, one of my children thought it'd be great to steal a rock from there and bring it home. I don't know what sort of rock it could be. You know, it's rusty looking, so it's probably got a bit of iron in it. But um, mm. you know, yeah. maybe, maybe it's yeah. something special. And and it's got one of the see the rare blue fleck there. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's why they brought it home. No, it's got that's blue tack. But um, <laughs> <laughs> you've got to you have to talk to your children, uh, Andrew. Uh, yeah. When you're on tour, uh, leave only footprints, take only memories. Yes. Well, Don't take bits of rock. I'll try to remember that. Well, I took, I did, 
in trouble for this one too. I took a piece of the Grand Canyon, but I figured it's making it bigger. So that is, that's a positive. <laughs> oh dear. And where were we? We were, we were somewhere, I can't remember, but um, there was, there was stuff lying around and I said, yeah, take as much as you like. Oh, really? <laughs> I can't remember what it was, volcano, yeah. I think. Yeah, but anyway, mate, um, we want to, yeah. Mm. You'd think the, just think the Grand Canyon people would be taking telling you that, wouldn't they? You know, Maybe. Just make it even grander. And well, that that was my whole plan. Yes. I made it bigger by that part. Yes. All right. Uh, a fascinating story, and hopefully um, we will find other relics and be able to connect them to this particular piece of arrowhead. And, you know, maybe one day someone will stumble across the exact rock it came from. Who knows? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting mystery, this one. And if you want to read about it, it's on the universetoday.com website. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Roger, you're last right here also. Space Nuts. Let us move on and have a chat about this uh, discovery uh, by Insight about the uh, rotation or the spin of Mars. What's going on there? It's, uh, again, a really intriguing story. So Insight is uh, no longer with us. Um, it, uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's no longer in, in sight. It, it, it's no longer in sight. It is with us. Uh, it's just uh, been shut down. Uh, it's um, run out of power, uh, I think, last December, so it's not that long ago since it uh, switched off. A uh, four-year mission, though, and not, as you uh, mentioned earlier, not a rover. It's actually a lander, which mm. was based on the same chassis or bus, as they call it in the space industry, uh, as Phoenix, uh, which you might remember landed uh, near Mars's, well, in Mars's northern Arctic, uh, and uh, essentially realized or didn't realize, but discovered by digging uh, down into the sand that there's permafrost ice underneath the sandy surface in that region uh, where Phoenix landed. So Phoenix was a great mission. InSight followed up with the idea of probing the planet's interior, um, principally with a thermometer that was supposed to be dug into the ground that never made it. Oh, that's so right. It got blocked by rocks and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but the real success of the mission was its seismometer. Uh, because it detected many Mars quakes, including one just before it shut down that was uh, really quite a big one. That's given people a lot of insight into the uh, in internal structure of Mars. You use um, seismic measurements to determine, for example, how big the metal core of a planet is, like the Earth. That's how we know uh, what it's like. <coughs> Excuse me. Same with same with Mars. So, um, but it also carried on board. Uh, a piece of equipment called RISE, R-I-S-E, uh, which is an acronym for <laughs> uh, maybe radio. <laughs> I can't find what it's an acronym for. I'm, I'm having a bad day today. You're having a ripper. Yeah, a ripper of a day. Uh, anyway, RISE is a radio... Uh, Rotation and Interior Structure Experiment. Well done. Thank you very much. I'm really I, just, glad. I just made it up. I don't know what it is. Really glad you're here. Really glad you're here, Andrew, today. Because if I was on my own, I'd just be waffling complete garbage. Um, 
It's uh, actually, uh, RISE has a principal investigator who's at the Royal Observatory in Belgium, a place that we don't often talk about on uh, Space Notes, but hello to anybody uh, in Brussels. Uh, it's uh, So there, there's um, the principal investigator was from the Royal Observatory. And what they've done is they've studied data from RISE, um, which has been collected over... Uh, 900 Martian days, uh, which is significant because a Martian day is a little bit longer than an Earth day, so it's yeah. roughly a thousand Earth days or hours. Uh, just remind me again, Andrew, what it stands for. Um, can't remember. Right, it's what it stands for: rotation and interior structure experiment. Yeah, that's right. Which basically is the answer that we're getting. That um, it's all about the ro rotation of Mars and about uh, its interior structure. And so, as you might guess from, uh, from its name. Uh, so um, how does that work though? Uh, the, the, apparently the RISE experiment has, it's, it's, as I said, I was about to say, it's, a, it's basically a very clever radio transponder. Uh, so what happens is you beam a radio signal from Earth to the lander uh, via NASA's Deep Space Network, which of course has one of its antennas here in Australia at Tidbinville near Canberra. Yep. Uh, you, so you beam a, a, a blip out, and then this RISE device essentially reflects the signal back or transponds it back. And what you're doing at the receiving end is looking for the change in frequency, which is caused by the Doppler effect. The fact, the fact that um, Mars is not only rotating, but it's moving in its orbit with respect to the Earth. So there is a shift in the frequency of these signals, and that shift can be measured with incredible precision. Mm. Um, uh, certainly for optical astronomy, you can, you can measure these Doppler shifts down to centimeters per second, uh, which is really quite extraordinary. Uh, I think it's even more sensitive in radio astronomy. Uh, so you've got that shift in frequency. And so that tells you, uh, first of all, about this planet's motion in its orbit, which is well understood, well known. But uh, by analyzing over time, you can also look at any changes that might have happened in Mars's rotation period. And there are. Uh, there are changes which are in the region of four milliseconds uh, per year, um, which is sort of significant. Our, uh, our day is slowing by something like, uh, what is it, two milliseconds per day per century. Uh, that's the slowdown of the Earth's uh, rotation. Yep. Um, what they found on Mars, though, is it's accelerating. Uh, oh. It's accelerating by about four milliarc seconds uh, per per year. So uh, days are getting shorter. They are at the moment. Now, with the Earth, we know that the underlying increase in the length of the day is due to the fact that the Moon uh, is taking energy from the Earth's rotation, and that yeah. energy is being put uh, essentially trans transferred into pushing the Moon away. Uh, so the Earth's rotation is... is it's called the sod-off effect. As in sod-off, you're too close. 
Well, yes. Um, I thought there was going to be a clever acronym there, but... No. <laughs> but... <laughs> it was just a dad joke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Here we go. Uh, uh, yes. Um, um, move away from the... Yes, move away from the cake, isn't that? Move along, move along. Nothing to see here. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's right. But the, the, so the, the moon's gravity is essentially slowing down the Earth's rotation, and, and as a result, the moon's being pushed pushed out to a, a more distant orbit. Um, so, but the opposite's happening on Mars. Now, Mars doesn't have a massive moon like we have, so it can't be anything to do with its moon. Its two moons are tiny. The bigger of them, Phobos, is 23 kilometers across. The other one's about 14, I think, if I remember rightly. These are not objects that are going to affect the rotation of Mars in any way because they're, they're too small. Even though Mars is only half the diameter of the Earth, it's still a planetary body. Um, and so, uh, well, there's various ideas uh, that are being thrown around as to what's happening here. Uh, one is, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, essentially, they don't know why, do they? No, that's right. So why it's speeding up? They don't. Uh, so, but there are there are some pretty uh, convincing suggestions, uh, and we know that these sorts of things happen on Earth and change the rotation of the Earth. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the things that changes it is the movement of ocean currents. They don't yeah. have ocean currents anymore on Mars. They might have had four billion years ago, but they don't now. And uh, but one of them is the way. Ice is accumulating, uh, or um, oh, this is on the polar ice caps. Uh, where does it come from? Well, there is small amounts of water vapor in the atmosphere. There's also carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which uh, com- contributes to the Martian ice caps, uh, yep. solid carbon dioxide, because the temperature is cold enough to allow that to happen. Uh, another suggestion, which uh, is something we think is happening in Greensland, sorry, Greenland here on Earth. Uh, what's called post-glacial rebound, where uh, ice melts, but that means that the mass of ice on top of a landmass is reducing, so the landmass is is rising. Back. Yeah, yeah bouncing I've back. seen that effect when we were in New Zealand in January uh, around the um, uh, bay, in, uh, the southern area of New Zealand, where there were all those um, areas were forged out by glaciers. You still see the rebound effect happening. Because you can see the fact that the the, the sea level's changing, I guess. Suppose. Yes, the, right. the, yeah. the, the emergence of the, the bedrock, I suppose. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yep, yeah. So uh, the yeah, so that so that's that's the the bottom line. That um, it's it's a discovery that's waiting uh, to be made in terms of what it's all about. Um, the the interesting thing will be, and unfortunately this won't be able to happen because RISE is no longer operational, but, you know, in another 900 days, you might find it's going the other way, uh, which um, would be interesting um, because that would knock on the head the idea of it being post-glacial land rise or things of that sort, which tends to take place over very long periods of time. Anyway, uh, that's all conjecture that is... Uh, um, probably of no value whatsoever. But the bottom line is, yeah, the, yes, the, the Martian day uh, is getting shorter. Mm. Um, now, there is another thing that Mars has been able to, sorry, that uh, RISE has been able to use to measure, and that's uh, something we call nutation, uh, well known in worlds of astronomy. It's a, it's a sort of wandering of the pole uh, of a planet. Uh, the Earth mutates as well, it has nutation. 
Uh, and by measuring the mutation on Mars, what these scientists have done is actually use it to, to determine the size of Mars's iron core um, because it, it's thought that mutation is due to the sloshing around of the liquid in, in its core. And so it turns out from these data that the uh, um, core has probably got a radius of about 1,800 kilometers. Um, so, yeah, something like, uh, 3,600 kilometers in diameter. Um, now, which I believe was a lot bigger than they expected. Is that right? It, yeah. Well, uh, yes. The yes, I, I think that, but it tallies also with um, the seismic measurements which have been made because the seismic measurements let you let you look at the diameter too uh, of oh, the okay. uh, the core of Mars. And it, and it turns out that the, these these measurements are actually in reasonably good agreement of in the region of eighteen hundred uh, kilometers radius. Uh, so, but it is uh, it is actually quite big compared with Mars itself. So it is a big core. Yeah. Um, uh, comparison in comparison with the Earth's core. So yeah. Um, the one final thing is that they they actually find the core is not. You know, we think of a, the core of a planet as being perfectly spherical, but it's not. It's slightly different, uh, not by much, but it's slightly different. And the rise data actually let you see the difference from a sphere that the core shape has. Um, and so the, the, what they're suggesting here is that uh, for this to be the case, there must be slightly higher or lower density regions, uh, maybe not in the core itself, but in the mantle, that's the rocky uh, after uh, the rocky covering of the of the Martian core, which of course has the has the crust on top of that. So look, it's uh, uh, it's a really interesting story. Um, you know, there's things about your favourite planet Mars that we're still learning about, Andrew. Yes, indeed. Um, you can read all about it on the phys.org website. That's p h y s dot org. Uh, I, I have another theory as to why Mars might be spinning faster. All the junk we're landing. There. <laughs> Couldn't knock uh, it out of kilter. It could knock it out of kilter, but I would have thought that would have made it spin slower um, <laughs> because you're putting more mass on the surface. It depends on the impact angle. Well, it depends on the impact angle. Is that that as well? Yes. All right. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, another fascinating discovery about Mars, and we keep on making them. We haven't found the life yet, but we're still working on that one. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and with a go. Space nuts. Now, Fred, we'll, uh, before we go to questions, uh, a little bit of homework from last week. We talked about that uh, meteorite found somewhere in Africa uh, that uh, they discovered was originally from Earth. So somehow, maybe, it got blown off the planet, hung around for a while, and then came back and landed in the desert. That's prompted a question from David in Queensland. Uh, what about the 1957 manhole cover? Did it come back? Now, the story behind this is it was blasted into space by a nuclear test. Now, I didn't know whether to believe this really happened or if it was an old wives' tale. What What do you know about it, Fred? I had heard it before, Andrew, but uh, didn't know any details. So, yes, I checked back, and there is uh, certainly... Um, Pretty recent uh, 
publicity given to the fact that it was uh, one of the scientists, a man called Robert Brownlee, uh, who worked on these nuclear tests back in the 1950s, who actually related the story um, before his death a few years ago uh, in an interview. He died at the age of 94 in 2018. Um, and it, it was uh, it was an interview with um, the Insider website. Um, and so uh, the details of, the, of that uh, interview are actually on the Insider website. It's easy to find. Yeah. Uh, it's a great story. Um, but the suggestion is, yes, that this uh, manhole cover, uh, which was placed over um, a... a basically a, a a deep hole not that deep actually only a matter of feet rather than miles in in which the 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 nuclear weapon was placed to make it an underground test um actually the the uh the, there were two of these tests andrew um they were called pascal uh, a and b pascal a uh was placed in a very deep hole, 485 feet, mm. uh, with an iron cap on it. But the second one uh, was more shallow. Uh, I beg your pardon, was deeper still, 500 feet. Um, and the, they recorded uh, the explosion with a camera that was looking in the direction of the hole with its manhole cover on top. Yeah. And so there is one frame in the high-speed camera that shows this cap flying off the column. Uh, because of the nuclear explosion. It was literally launched. It was launched, and but the calculation is something like 50, 60 kilometers per second. Wow. That was its speed. Um, now, at that speed, going through the atmosphere, the, be, the atmospheric friction would be colossal, uh, and it would be heated to something that is like a meteorite, you know, uh, or a meteor which melts in the upper atmosphere because of its speed. This thing's going through the lower atmosphere, which is much more dense. I wouldn't mind betting that it just vaporized. Ah. Um, so uh, for, for it to be, I mean, that 50 or 60 kilometers per second is five times the Earth's escape velocity. So if it made it to the top of the atmosphere intact, it wouldn't be coming back. No, uh, it, so, it, it could still be hurtling out in yeah, could be. where. So it, it, yes, so it could be the first human-made object into space because, of course, that was in August 1957 and Sputnik 1 was launched in October 1957. So uh, maybe, so, just so, maybe... Yeah, you know, maybe it's just a conspiracy so that the Americans say, hey, we were first. Well, we were first. Yeah, there's always a possibility. <laughs> it's a great story. I did a quiz question about it once years and years ago, and uh, I just found the whole story quite fascinating. Uh, I'd like to think it's out there somewhere, but it'll probably, you know, s swirl around for a while and then go into someone else's atmosphere and plop someone on the head. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I'll say, oi, where'd that come from? Yes. What the hell is it? Yeah. Oh, it's radioactive. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's another problem. Yeah, that's right. This means war. <laughs> yes. Well, it could be, yeah. Declaration of war. You know. So the simple answer to David's question is it probably didn't come back if it got out, uh, but it may well have been vaporized in the process. Yeah, it's, um, it's a fascinating story. Uh, I'd like to find more uh, about that and I'll do my best. I love the story. I think yes. that's really, really interesting.
Thanks, David. Let's move on to a question now from Andrew, who's asking a question that I uh, I predicted a couple of weeks ago. Hello, Fred and Andrew. This is Andrew from Melbourne again. I've just been thinking about this new or fairly recent paper about the age of the universe potentially being twice as long as we thought it was. And from what I've read, it seems to be depending on a thing called tired light. And as I understand it, that's related to light uh, losing energy because it interacts with um, particles along the way, along the path of travel. Um, but that interaction, I think, should be actually scattering the light, shouldn't it? Or is it when light gets absorbed and loses a bit of energy, does it, does it go off in the same direction? Really curious about that one. Hopefully you can get to it soon. Love your program. Been listening since the very first episode. Bye now. Wow. You must have a lot of spare time. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Um, the answer is we very don't patient know. patient man. don't know at all. Can't do anything. Next question. <laughs> um, tired light. Yeah. Um, look, tired light, uh, it, it's a bit vague about exactly the mechanism uh, mm. because it was never really accepted. There were a few scientists who... Uh, thought that the redshift could be interpreted as being a tide light phenomenon uh, rather than due to the the expansion of the universe stretching the light waves. Um, I have to say that things I've read uh, in the wake of that uh, paper about the, uh, the the universe perhaps being twice as, as old as we thought it was because... Uh, the scientist who worked it out uh, did it by means of a combination of tired light and the expansion of the universe. Uh, I, I think it's it's being regarded as uh, not essentially prima facie evidence that the universe is twice as old as we thought it was, uh, as just one possible interpretation of the data, but one that's got no, you know, no more value than any other random interpretation. Whereas the simplest explanation is that it is the universe is 3.8 billion years old because of the uh, fact that the Earth space is expanding and stretching the light and radio waves, which is the uh, um, origin of the cosmological redshift. So, um, but, uh, but uh, Andrew's right uh, in terms of scattering. Scattering uh, uh, phenomena are very well understood. They're used in many, many uh, instances of uh, our investigation, uh, you know, ranging from sensing what rocks are made of on the planet Mars uh, by scattering of, uh, of radiation, uh, to that, to 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 just the fact that the sky is blue, which is a scattering phenomenon. It's caused by uh, light being scattered uh, by something called Rayleigh scattering, which is a mechanism that scatters blue light preferentially. And I think um, the sky being blue actually answers the second part of Andrew's question. Uh, certainly in terms of Rayleigh scattering, which is perhaps the one that we are most familiar with, um, the light is not scattered in the same direction as it was originally traveling in. It's scattered in random directions. There are preferential directions that you get, um, but but generally it's, it's random. With, uh, the, 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 there are two pre preferred directions what are called forward scattering, where things are generally going in the same direction as the photons were originally traveling. So the scattered photons roughly go 
uh, in the same direction, forward scattering, but they can also be backscattered, which means they're going the opposite direction from which they were traveling. Um, but they, but it, so it's a random a sort of stochastic process. Uh, but the fact that the sky is blue is what tells you that it's, it's scattered in all directions uh, because wherever we look in the sky, we see blue, and that's coming from light being scattered somewhere else. Uh, Except if you live in England. In our direction. <laughs> yes, okay. If you live in England, uh, there is blue sky. Mean it's blue. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to explain that won't I uh, yeah I, I do remember many many weeks of greyness in the sky where I grew up and um, it was blue occasionally once in a blue moon boom um, okay uh, confused Andrew I am but yeah hopefully you understood the answer <laughs> well <laughs> hopefully I understood the questions ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear Thanks, Andrew. Good question. Uh, let's move on to a question now from Fenton. Yeah, hello, Fred and Andrew. This is Fenton speaking to you from St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I have two questions for you. They're interrelated, and that those are the how time dilation and spaghettification seem to have escaped uh, science and ended up in popular media. Um, now, is there a relationship between these two phenomena? Time dilation and spaghettification? Is it a rigorous relationship? Do we know what it is? How many years of time dilation can a human hold out before they are spaghettified? And finally, um, is there going to be a difference in time between the center of our galaxy and our location in the Milky Way. Thank you very much. I look forward to your broadcast. Goodbye now. Thank you, Fenton. I think the last part of his uh, question we did get recently, and the answer was yes, about the difference in time related on where you sit in the in the galaxy. Um, but let's go to the first bit first. Time dilation, spaghettification, are they related? If so, in what way and you know, what happens? Yes, yeah, so they're both um, relativistic phenomena, but they are different in the sense that spaghettification is something that definitely happens to you when you fall into a black hole. Yeah. <laughs> Time dilation depends on your frame of reference. So uh, time your, your time, as you're being spaghettified, you don't notice time changing at all. Your, your clock ticks at the same rate as you go through that spaghettification pro process. But to an observer outside that gravitational well, you would see the time slowing down as mm. the person is spaghettified. Uh, and that's because you're in a external reference frame, and you, so you're not seeing. You're 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 working by your own clock, not the clock of the person who's in that huge gravitational potential. So yes, there's a relationship between them, but uh, it's not quite as straightforward as you might think, particularly from the science fiction world. Um, the yes, the, you're right uh, as well, Andrew, in that we can observe time dilation. It was actually, if I remember rightly, uh, this was this work that we reported on recently, where. I think it was great. Lewis was one of the authors, a friend of mine from Sydney University, uh, if I remember rightly. Uh, it was um, 
I know he's from Sydney University, but if I remember right, he was one of the authors. Uh, it's it was actually in uh, distant galaxies that that the time dilation was observed um, because of the behaviour of quasars. If I if I'm remembering the right the right piece of uh, information, is that what tallies with your memory? In think so. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, so yes, the answer is it's, it's, it is observed in dif- distant, uh, you know, in, in distant objects. Not yeah, probably not the centre of the galaxy, but certainly in the centre of other galaxies. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah. And what was the last part of his question? That was it. That was it. Yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and and that's yeah. That's what we talked about. There was a middle bit, which was how long could you how how long could you hold out in time That's dilation? Right. Yeah, but but yeah. you're talking about two different things there. The the time dilation is something you observe from the outside. Spaghettification is something that happens to you on the inside. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. I knew there was something else. I just trying to. I didn't write that bit down. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad it's you this morning as well as me. Andrew. <laughs> yeah. I think we're both in the same boat, paddling upstream without paddle. Yeah, with a bit of luck, people will stop listening to us and we'll both stop doing this. <laughs> this will be so. Uh, it might be a rebellion. Uh, thank you, Fenton. I um, hope we adequately answered your question. Uh, finally, we go to Rennie on one of our favourite topics. Hi, this is Rennie Trow from West Hills, California. My question today is concerning black holes. Is there any evidence that a black hole has consumed so much matter that it has reached the ultimate singularity and has exploded outward, spewing its contents, contents, either in our universe or going out the other end, creating a new universe? Mm, Rennie, that's a fascinating question, uh, and... Uh, yeah, has has uh, there been any evidence of a black hole overeating and exploding, like a Monty Python movie? <laughs> no, uh, no evidence. But um, people have hypothesised that that's how big bangs occur. Uh-huh. Uh, most notably, Roger Penrose. Uh, I think that's close to his idea that big bangs come from uh, indigestion in supermassive black holes. <laughs> Yeah, that um, you know they. As they, long as they not diarrhea, then we're all in trouble. <laughs> yeah, we're really we're really smacking the bottle <laughs> of the barrel now, aren't we? Yeah, it's good. We we might not have to do this anymore when people are just <laughs> right. They've lost the plot. Yeah, the both of them they've just got too old and seen on. Yeah. Um, so what? So black holes do lose mass, uh, which is the Hawking radiation. Yeah, um, that's been demonstrated to be correct but it's a very very slow process and it, it basically they're losing mass by losing energy with the equivalent of mass and energy you're losing um, uh, it through electromagnetic radiation broadband electromagnetic radiation uh, at a very very slow level and so we think that of all the black holes that have ever been created in the universe uh, none of them have, ev- have evaporated yet simply because the unit because it takes too long wow uh, so, um, but that's not quite the same sort of thing that uh, Rennie's asking about. Uh, I think um, y- y- it might be worth, you know, Rennie having a look online to to check out uh, what Roger Penrose has model has done on this sort of work, because mm. he is certainly one of the proponents of this kind of idea. Yeah. So the idea has 
substance. Of yes, cannabis. but not evidence. <laughs> yeah, well, like many things, isn't it? Yeah. When you talk astronomy, yeah, lots of great ideas, but we can't prove it. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, thanks, Rennie. Lovely to hear from you. Thanks to everybody who contributed to this week's program. And please keep the questions coming in. Uh, next week will be an all-question episode. So uh, if you've got something on your mind, uh, jump on our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Click on the AMA link and send us an audio question or a text question. Or on the right-hand side where it says, hang on, I'm just going to get the right wording, send us your voice message. Got a device with a microphone. Sweet. Just tell us who you are, where you're from, and ask your question, and we will put it in the, we'll get to it next decade file. And um, while you're on the website, uh, have a look at all the other stuff that's there too. Uh, the Astronomy Daily Newsletter, uh, the shop. Oh, what's in the shop? I'll have a look. Uh, somebody asked me about um, Space Nuts memorabilia the other day. Look, you can get a cap and a hat and a beanie so that you got your head covered. Get them all at the same time. Um, notebooks, socks. Uh, in fact, I think if you bought every piece of apparel that you can wear, you would be fully clothed except for underpants. So uh, check it all out at our website, spacestartspodcast.com. I think that'll do us, Fred. We're done for another week. Thank you so much. Thank you, after. Maybe we're done for good. <laughs> I was going to say, we might be done for good. <laughs> oh, dear. oh, well, there you go. Mm. Um, that's why they call us space nuts. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. All right. We'll see you soon, Fred. Thank you. Sounds great. Take care, Andrew. Cheers. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts and um, on his best behavior this week for a change, you in the studio. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for joining us. Uh, looking forward to your company on the next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.